Jeremiah 15, verse 15. You who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me. And take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the circle of the merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. For you filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual? And my wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. And then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, though they fight against you. They will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Father, as we open Your Word this morning, we do so just seeking to think these things through, Lord, with our hearts. That is my prayer this morning. That we wouldn't just take a soulish approach to this, but we would be given the thoughts of the heart that You would help us to understand at a heart level what's going on here and why You place this in Your Word. What does it have to do, Lord, with us here in 2013? How can Jeremiah's plea and Your response be precious before us? We come assuming that it is. This is Your Word. We come believing You for Your truth. And we come asking Your Holy Spirit to teach us and change us. In Your name we pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen. On the surface, the text before us is simply Jeremiah praying and God answering. How do you know that, Rick? Well, that's that's what my heading says. In the Bible, it says that. There's far more going on here. In fact, what we discover here is Jeremiah's personal pain has reached a boiling point. This is literally the epitome of Jeremiah's personal sorrow. Now, he's going to express sorrow throughout the rest of the book and on into lamentations. Sorrow for his people, sorrow for Judah, sorrow for for Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. But his personal sorrow truly reaches an apex here. Or perhaps we could say it truly reaches down to the pits. It's the weight of the message that he has to preach and the backlash he keeps receiving for it, his longing for his people, his isolation, his loneliness, and his despair over what's coming. And all of this dredge up his most outspoken grievance against the Lord. He says something here that is shocking. That you would imagine if someone says to the Lord, man, back up and give them room because they could be struck with God's indignation. After this and after the Lord's amazingly gracious response, Jeremiah will never again complain to the Lord as he does in the four verses beginning in verse 15. This is the height of his 
complaint. St. John of the Cross, back in the 16th century, referred to this as the dark night of the soul. That point where life is at its most difficult and faith is literally in crisis. And that's what's going on. Jeremiah is having a faith crisis. And for anyone who's ever been there or perhaps is there, especially when you are in crisis and you're tempted to complain or to grumble against God, this is powerful teaching. Because in this section of Scripture, God instructs how to extract what is precious from what is worthless. To extract the precious from the worthless. Up to this point, Jeremiah, prophet of the Lord, has been pleading with the Lord for his people. He has been interceding on behalf of his people. He's been crying out for them continuously, even after the Lord said, Jeremiah, stop praying. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. And what does Jeremiah do? He keeps praying. He keeps interceding. Almost as though he cannot believe that God would say, don't pray for these people. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14. The Lord says again, do not pray for this people nor lift up a cry or a prayer for them. For I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. And because of this, I think Jeremiah has got to be the most relatable of the prophets. The one I understand and get better than any. Isaiah came along and in glorious prophetic language talked about Messiah. Showed us the coming of Jesus. Referred to the suffering servant. And the glories that will come. And we see in the life of Isaiah this this prophet of intense faith and one who just, man, he just beams and walks the word of the Lord. Not like Jeremiah, who struggles with the message. You know, sometimes I struggle with calling this Thursday night prayer for the lost. Because I don't like throwing out that word knowing that if someone is not a believer in Jesus, they might be offended by that. What are you calling me lost for? You're lost. How dare you refer to me as lost? You know what? They are. I was outside of Jesus. But that doesn't make the message any easier. And you know this. It is not easy to go to your non-believing family and friends and say, hey, you need Jesus. And without Him, you're going to hell. Who wants to carry that message? And Jeremiah's message is a message of judgment. And a message of incredible warning. And it is a heavy message. And so he continues praying to the Lord. And and like me, again, he's so relatable. I see in Jeremiah, you know, this, this man who, he just, like many of us, he won't take no for an answer. God says, stop praying. Okay, Lord, by the way, I just need to lift up so and so because this is, they're really on my heart. You know, finally, God puts his foot down. Finally, God says in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Modern day translation, Jeremiah, let it go, man. Let it go. If Moses and Samuel were here, it would make no difference. Why Moses and Samuel? Because they were Israel's two greatest intercessors. 
These were two men who truly stood in the gap between the people and the Lord. Psalm 99 verse 6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. And so God says to Jeremiah, you could call on the dynamic duo of intercessory prayer, and I am not listening. Stop praying. And so how does Jeremiah respond? He prays. (laughs) But not for his people. He begins to plead for himself. He begins to pray to the Lord his most personal prayer. We're going to divide Jeremiah's prayer into four parts this morning to consider. I looked for ways to kind of narrow this down. I like to give you points to outline how we're going through whatever passage it is we're studying, and I like to give one or two word, easy to remember phrases. These are not uh, little phrases, they're long phrases. But I'm going to give them to you anyway because I think it's important to recognize what's going on here. Dividing Jeremiah's prayer into four parts, part one. The worthlessness of self-defense versus the value of reproach. I'm going to say that again. The worthlessness of self-defense versus the value of reproach. I'll show you what, what we mean here. Verse 15. You know, O Lord, you who know, remember me, take notice of me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Lord, I'm enduring all their attacks. You told me not to pray for the people. I'm having a hard time with all of this because in the midst of my ministry, all I'm getting is attacked for it. And I have endured this, Lord. I continue to endure this. I am among the persecuted, Lord. And you know, that's the way it should be. We should be among the persecuted. Keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Peter. Because I think Peter gives us an excellent explanation of the worthlessness of self-defense versus the value of reproach. See, what we're trying to do this morning is take the lead from the Lord and extract the precious from the worthless. There are many worthless things going on in Jeremiah's heart, in his prayer, but there are also some precious things, and God would have Jeremiah, as well as you and me, see the precious in the worthless. Extract the precious, draw it out of that which is worthless. It is worthless to be self-defensive. And it is precious to be reproached. Watch this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. I want to read you a couple of different passages here. Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now put this in the modern day translation. Employees, (laughs) be submissive to your bosses. You could do it with anything in your life. There's someone in your life, in every one of our lives, who is over us. Someone that we have to, in some way, shape, or form, We have to submit to. It could be a child submitting to a parent. It could be a wife submitting to a husband. Don't throw things at me. It could be an employee submitting to a boss. Apply this to yourself. Be submissive. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So it doesn't matter if your boss is a jerk. It doesn't matter. 
for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. How does it find favor? If you bear up when it's not fair. Verse 20, For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated, but endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. Whoa, this is why you're called. Here it is, you're calling. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why we're Christians. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Skip down to verse 13 of chapter 3. Peter continues with this thought. It runs all the way through his first letter. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope which is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And then he goes on to do some theology we won't get into this morning. Skip down to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing or your proving as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now I love this. He says, now make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer. Well, good, that's not me. Or a troublesome meddler. (laughs) But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. How many of you have received reproach because you were being an idiot and you deserved it? You can raise your hand because it's every one of us. There is a vast difference between being called out because you're doing something dumb and being called out because you're glorifying Jesus in your life. And yet we get defensive anytime we're called out. I say we. Maybe I'm making some assumption here about you all. I get defensive when I'm called out even if I did something wrong that deserves calling out. 
And yet Peter seems to be saying very clearly, it's not the reproach that you deserve that you need to bear up. It's the reproach you don't deserve that you need to say thank you, Jesus, for. Thanks for that reproach. Thanks for their attacks, Lord. Thank you that they came after me and were gunning for me. Thank you, Lord, they showed up loaded for bear and began firing away just because I was preaching your word. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. For Peter says, in this you are blessed. Then he says in verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who did not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. What's the point? Go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is complaining here. He is defensive here. And he holds up as his first line of self-defense, know that for your sake I endure reproach. I'm getting battered here, Lord, for your sake. Self-defense. Self-defense is worthless. But reproach has great value. Criticism has a way of killing the flesh. Someone comes along and begins to criticize you, what do you do? You start to evaluate the criticism. Don't always jump to the conclusion that the critic is wrong just because it feels uncomfortable or it hurts or it doesn't quite jive with what you thought you were about. Criticism kills the flesh. And anything that kills the flesh is a good thing. Because aren't we as followers of Jesus trying to grow in the Spirit? Aren't we trying to become, desiring to become more like Him? Knowing ultimately that the flesh is going to die off anyway and the Spirit will remain. That's who I truly am. That's who God is grooming. That's what He's working on is my Spirit. And so anything that kills the flesh, I consider a good thing. Reproach, criticism, kills the flesh while enlivening the Spirit. Because if the criticism is inaccurate, you know it's going to fall away. But if it's accurate, it kills off the flesh, it sends me into a mode of evaluation. What happens when a reproach comes? Extract the precious from the worthless. It is worthless to suffer reproach for criticism for temporary things. I like the Beatles. I admit it. (laughs) I do. I, I love the music. And this may cause you not to want to pick up our, our new CD, which is going to be out very soon. But it informed a lot of the recording. Things that I learned listening to and studying the way the Beatles went about musically their recording, we used some of that and thought through some of that and applied some of those same principles. The music is incredible. The brilliance behind it. The lifestyle. The sin. Four messed up guys who needed desperately Jesus. But be that as it may, if someone criticizes me for liking the Beatles, big deal. You can have your opinion, I'll have my opinion. I like the Beatles, but I love Jesus. And to suffer reproach for faith in Jesus, for trusting in Him, for teaching His Word, for being on the lookout for His coming... That's a precious thing. That is a reproach worth suffering. 
that will strengthen your faith. It may hurt in the moment, but as you walk away from the moment of criticism or reproach, because you love Jesus, because you're focused on the eternal, hallelujah, you're strengthened in your walk of faith. If someone reproaches you and criticizes you because of the music that you like, the clothes that you wear, the business you engage in, and it's not an eternal thing, big deal. But if they reproach you for Jesus, that is precious. James said, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Listen to this. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instruction. That's what the Word does. That's what I'm called to do. And at times, and I'll be honest with you, at times when I get in trouble for preaching the Word and putting it out there and throwing out something that bothers or upsets or convicts someone, praise the Lord. He loves us all too much not to rebuke us with His Word. Not to allow, on occasion, reproach to fall in our lives. Self-defense is absolutely worthless. Reproach, however, is a precious thing. Part two. The worthlessness of self-justification versus the value of the Word of God. The worthlessness of self-justification versus the value of the Word of God. Listen to this verse. You've probably heard it before. Hear it in context. Your words were found, Jeremiah prays, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. This is a good thing. The Word, the Word of God is a joy. It's a delight. I have read this verse over and over. Les claims it to be his own. I reject that. It's my verse. We share it. We'll share it. Okay. And it's a wonderful verse, and it is absolutely true. So don't miss this part of it. Absolutely true. The Word is a delight. The Word is a joy. We need to feast upon it. However, that is not what Jeremiah is saying. I don't believe at a heart level. Job said in Job 23.12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job is probably doing there exactly what Jeremiah is doing here. What's that, Rick? I'll tell you, just a minute. (laughs) Psalm 19, verse 10 tells us, The word is sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, and for a honey addict like myself, that says something. Sweet and wonderful is the word of God. Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. A joy, a delight. This is the word of God, and that is a good thing. But Jeremiah is using it for self-justification. The context of this prayer is Jeremiah complaining to the Lord, and he's already said, I am under great reproach, and that ain't fair. Self-defense. I love your word. It's a joy. It's the delight of my heart. I'm in your word constantly, Lord. I've been called by your name. And he is self-justifying. Again, because of the context of this whole prayer. 
Why did he raise the issue of the Word in his life and of himself feasting on the Word? Lord, not a, the reproach thing is one thing. Number two, I have been a faithful Bible student. I did Bible study fellowship all five years. Every week. I endured Pastor Rick's midweek marathon teachings. Planes flying and all, Lord. I was there. I was in Your Word. I stuffed myself on the Scriptures. I ingested. I digested the whole lot. And yeah, they were a delight and a joy. But God, I just want you to know, I was in Your Word. Self-justification is worthless, gang. You can stand before the gates of heaven and say, God, I studied Your Word my whole life. You know there are people who do that. They're called theologians. And there are many theologians who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Worthless. Not the Word. But justifying yourself based on the study of the Word. And if you have ever sat through teaching here at the bridge and gotten the idea that by being a Bible stuffer, you can somehow become justified before the Lord, you have missed the point. It is only grace that will save you, not stuffing yourself on Scripture. So we shouldn't stuff? No, stuff! Eat up! Feast! Devour! Ingest! Digest! Take it in! Because this will change you in ways that... Very few things can. In fact, this will change you in ways that only His Spirit can. The value is incredible here, but we misunderstand it and we misvalue it. If like Job, we're saying, I've treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food, yet all this bad stuff's happening to me. I need to be justified here and I'm proving myself by being in the Word. Jeremiah is not expressing this with joy. Though the Word is a joy, though the Word is a delight for his heart, he is not expressing it with joy. He's expressing it with self-justification. Extract the precious from the worthless here. It is worthless to study the Bible simply to justify your Christianity. We study to show ourselves approved. 2 Timothy 2.15 Absolutely. His word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, directional. Of course it is, Psalm 119.105. And there is great knowledge and understanding to be found in the word of God. But there's an intrinsic value to the word of God that must not be overlooked. As the word gets in, the spirit begins to alter me. The Spirit begins to change my life. Sometimes those changes are subtle. Other times those changes are huge. Isaiah 55.11, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God says, you don't take my word in without something happening to you. I start to alter you. You don't even know that. When people tell me, yeah, I've been dragging this friend along every Sunday and they're sitting there and they're, they're you know, discounting everything that you're saying up there. I'm like, that's cool. Just keep bringing them. The word's going to change them. The word's getting in. It's an undeniable truth. The Word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But listen, don't miss this, more than all of this, 
the most precious value of the Word of God is that it opens our hearts to Jesus Christ. It allows us to see and know and walk with more intimately Jesus, who said in Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. Who said in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of Me. And so Jeremiah in this prayer is using the Bible to justify himself and he's missing the precious value of the person of Jesus in the Word of God. Extract the precious thing. Always be looking for the precious. The most precious thing in God's Word is Jesus Himself. Part 3. The worthlessness of self-righteousness versus the value of indignation. The worthlessness of self-righteousness versus the value of indignation. Verse 17. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone, for you filled me with indignation. Jeremiah, as prophet of the Lord at this point in his ministry, is indignant, which is just this side of fed up. The Hebrew word indignation, it is za'am. Za'am means experiencing or expressing intense anger to the point of defiance. Intense anger. I am angry, Lord. And it's more emotional. Understand this, gang. It is feeling that righteous anger. You see something unjust taking place. You hear something that is inappropriate going on. You see a new show come out on TV and go, I can't believe they've gone one step further. Righteous indignation, outrage, exasperation, and Za'am is the exasperation of the Lord. Jeremiah says, you're filling me up with this. I'm so full of anger and frustration. He's looking at the superficial social scene in Jerusalem and he's saying, I can't even go there because of you, Lord. I can't go to a flippant party. I can't go hang out at the theaters. I can't go to a concert. You know, I can't just hang out with friends and mess around and crack jokes and take it easy and lay back. You show me their rebellious heart. I can't party with them anymore. I'm indignant. You ever get indignant with the immorality of the entertainment industry? Cheryl knows there's a sound I make. I can't help it. We're watching a show and something inappropriate happens on the show and I just go... (laughs) You know, it usually has to do with something like they'll say, and then a billion years ago when man first cropped his head up out of... (laughs) You ever... Find yourself outraged by the godlessness in the public schools. Exasperated by the bold rebellion of our culture. Saw a sign. Uh, Brian sent this news clip having to do with atheism in America and a, and a sign of a huge crowd of people. And, and it said, impeach God. And you know what? It made me indignant. It made me angry. Do you ever feel like you sit alone because of the indignation. Like, you're the only one. Can't this world see? At this point, I just need to say, be careful, because it is awfully easy in these days for us to hole up in self-righteousness. Self-righteous indignation while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. 
Indignation, if misapplied, can cause us, gang, to pull back if we come at it self-righteously. If we forget where we were, or perhaps where sometimes we are. If we forget how we imbibed in the culture, how we enjoyed certain things and sometimes tragically still do. Extract the precious from the worthless. It is worthless to be angry at the world out of our own self-righteousness. Self-righteous indignation causes people to pull back from the lost. And that is completely opposite of what Jesus has asked us to do. Righteous indignation, the righteous indignation of the Lord, sent Jesus to the cross. When God looked at the world and was fed up with sin... He put on human flesh and He got crucified. And there's such a difference. How, how do I know, how do I know Rick, if my indignation is godly or if it's not godly? There's a very simple way to tell. You know your indignation is godly rather than self-righteous when it produces godly sorrow. When you look at that crowd of people with the big impeach God sign and rather than going, Ugh, you go, my heart breaks for them for the depth of their depravity, for their lostness, for where I know they're headed without Jesus, that kills me. See now, Jeremiah, (laughs) he's struggling with all this, with his self-righteousness. You have filled me with indignation. And there's a heartache that comes with godly righteousness, godly indignation. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Behold, he says, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourself, what indignation... What fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Gang, there is a precious value in indignation, in feeling that za'am. To be angry, not at the lost, but angry at the leader of the lost, Satan himself. Angry at the demonic in the spiritual realm that would draw people into hell. Be angry at wickedness and unrighteousness and evil while having a broken heart for lost people. That is precious. Part four. Part four, the worthlessness of self-pity versus the value of the Spirit of God. And this gets a little intense. Verse 18. Why has my pain been perpetual? And my wound incurable refusing to be healed... Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? My pain is perpetual, Lord. My wound is incurable. And your stream, your stream is unreliable. And with that, Jeremiah's self-indulgent complaining goes a step too far. I'll show you why in just a second. Jeremiah is bound up with woe is me, selfish sorrow. He's taken a step too far in all of his difficulty. Now he's in that place where he's now turned it against the Lord, referring to the Lord as an unreliable stream. 
back in verse 10, if you look back just a little bit, he says, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me, as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. He is a woe-begone fellow. But when he says, Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable, he goes too far. He's drawing a graphic example, gang, of the land of Israel. And we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. There are deceptive brooks and wadis all over the land. And you go there in March, and you're likely to see one of two things, especially in and around Judea, in and around Jerusalem. You see either stream beds filled with water rushing, because there have been recent rains, or you see these dry, cracked, empty creeks that don't look like they've ever had water in them, though they may have had water in them yesterday. Because the water evaporates so quickly. The water from the rains that rushes through these wadis and into these areas, into these ponds and and brooks, will sink down into the earth and evaporate almost overnight. Because the land is so porous, it's so sandy, and it it doesn't hold up. A deceptive stream. A traveler would all often look to a stream or a wadi that he knew was there the last time he came through, go to it and find nothing but dust and dry cracks because the water hasn't been there. It hasn't rained recently enough. The land is 100% reliant on the rains from heaven to survive. God chose it that way. I came to you, Jeremiah complains, for drink, but it's like you evaporated. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you've been coming to the Lord, but it's all for naught? Gang, extract the precious from the worthless. Self-pity is a deceptive stream. The Holy Spirit of the living God is a flowing river. Self-pity is a deceptive stream. Oh, it's just not fair. Woe is me. My pain is perpetual. My wound is incurable. And the Holy Spirit pays no attention to me. He's a deceptive stream. Do you see why Jeremiah crossed a line? Will you be like a deceptive stream to me, Lord? Jesus said in John 7.37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Not wadis. Not deceptive brooks, rivers. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the Spirit and the Bride, the Spirit and the Church say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And the precious truth is that the Lord has given us His Holy Spirit to see us through the dry spells. Yes, we have them. Yes, we have wilderness wanderings. Yes, we have difficult times. But the Holy Spirit doesn't dry up. So Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And I'll grant you, in in church circles, there is a right way and there's a wrong way to walk in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised to give His people. But as I said last week, don't, because of the abuse of some, cut off the river of living water from the fellowship of believers. We desperately need His flowing stream, His flowing river. It is not deceptive. The work of the Holy Spirit is not deceptive. 
Well, how come I can't feel the Holy Spirit working in my life? Maybe you've been quenching the Spirit. Maybe you've been filling yourself with wine instead of the Holy Spirit. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, maybe you're taking in something else that's fixing it for you in the short term rather than going to the Spirit of the living God and saying, Lord, I'm struggling with this. I need more of You. I need to be filled with You. Don't cut off the living waters, the river of life, especially in these last days. We need God's Spirit flowing, rushing through us. He is not a deceptive stream. 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal. We're seeing that on the rise, aren't we? Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's the Laodicean church in the last days. That is Christianity today that says the Holy Spirit has no place now. He just had a place 2,000 years ago. That is holding to a form of godliness, looks like church, but there's no power there. That's a deceptive stream. But the Holy Spirit of the living God is not a deceptive stream. And by the way, Paul ends up that verse to Timothy saying, avoid such men as these. Don't hang out with, don't walk with, don't break bread with those who act the part but reject my spirit. Wow. Jeremiah questions, listen to this, Jeremiah questions the reliability of the stream of the spirit because he is awash in self-pity. And the more a person looks inward to the self, the harder it is to be filled with the spirit of God. If I'm all upset about my life and my struggles and my stuff and my difficulties, me, 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 there is no place for the Spirit. Romans 8.5 says, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. So how does the Lord respond to all this? With amazing grace. Watch this, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you, and before me you will stand. Gang, he is not talking to the people of Judah. He's talking to Jeremiah. If you will return, then I will restore you. How do I know that what Jeremiah is saying, especially there in verse 18, goes a step too far? Because the Lord gently and tenderly says, Jeremiah, you need to repent. You need to repent, son. Self-defense, self-justification, self-righteousness, self-pity have turned Jeremiah the prophet inward to himself and away from the Lord. And the Lord gently says, Jeremiah, return to me. There's too much Jeremiah in this prayer. And there's not enough Jesus. Return to me. Repent. Return to me. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. The word precious in the Hebrew is yakar. And it means valuable, worthy, glorious, excellent. Sounds like a verse. Philippians 4.8 Whatever is true. 
whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Extract the precious from the worthless. Focus on the precious, not the worthless. The worthless is all the self stuff. The precious is all the spirit stuff that He offers. The precious is Jesus. The worthless tends to be Rick. Or, in your case, someone else. Don't blame me for you. (laughs) And what's amazing here is the Lord now is beginning to reinstate Jeremiah to become his prophet. He's already been the prophet. Right? He was already called. Back Jeremiah chapter 1, we see the calling of Jeremiah to be the spokesman of the Lord. And all of a sudden, the Lord says here in verse 19, if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. Thought I already was. Well, you were, but then you took a little detour there, bro. <laughs> Extract the precious from the worthless. Now listen, as a representative of the Lord, if you would be a representative of the Lord, if you would in any given situation be God's spokesman, you must be someone who measures things by God's value system and not by man's. We need to learn to see with His values. Someone who learns to extract the precious from the worthless. To see things differently than we see things in the mundane mindset of man. I was reminded of this just over the weekend, thinking again how selfish I am. And how self-pitying and self-justifying and self-righteous. And I read again this morning... If you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. I think, Lord, I want to be your spokesman. But I don't want to be spouting stupid flesh phrases. Man cries out, perpetual pain! And God sees endurance unto faith. The man cries out, incurable wounds, Lord! And he sees opportunity for healing. Man moans deceptive streams and God pours out His Holy Spirit in truth. He says this, note this, they for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Church, oh, church, listen, I'm just talk, not just talking about our fellowship. The entire church, we need to hear this and hear it loud and clear. They for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Becoming like the world does not make the world want to become like us. And if the church could just figure that out, and I'm going to just say this honestly, at this conference I was at yesterday, I had a moment during worship at, at the church that we were at, I had a moment during worship where I'm walking and I'm going, ah, this is so much like a concert at the, in the world. Where the lights are going and the background's great and the, the music was slick and happening. And you know, you know one of the things I love about the way John leads worship? He's humble. He does it because I ask him to do it. He hasn't pleaded. He hasn't begged. I, I just say, hey, could you? And he does. There's nothing flashy or showy. He just sits on the stool over here. We actually had several years ago, back after we started the bridge, someone visited and they said, you know, your band needs to be a little more lively. Because they just sit over there and play. (laughs) It ain't about the band, gang. It's not about the show. This is not a show. 
And we're trying too hard to, to look like the world. And, and the Lord says, in essence, you don't live and act like the lost and expect to be used by God to reach the lost. We must be who we have become in Christ. They, for their part, may turn to you. And that's what they, we want them to turn, not to us, but to the Lord. But as for you, you must not turn to them. Amen. Jeremiah, stop thinking in the flesh. Don't act like the world. Self-pitying and self-justifying and self Don't do that, man. They may turn to you. Don't be like them. I love this old quote, be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. Amen. I think that's probably the most profound thing said all morning right here. In our diligent desire to see people saved, many Christians have altered their look or their behavior, or even tragically their message to emulate a lost and dying world. May the difference be in the attraction. May people see such a difference in you, such a difference in me, that they are attracted not to us, but to the glory of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.6 God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, our flesh, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Jesus said, Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so we extract the precious from the worthless that we might bring glory to the Lord in the way we live our lives. That we might reflect Him And not our own fleshly attitudes and behaviors. But listen, the most precious thing of all is what comes next. Verse 20. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. In other words, I'm going to make you tough on the outside, Jeremiah. You're going to be able to take it. All right? And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. I will save you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Why, Jeremiah might ask? Because I am with you. And that's the precious here. That's the precious thing. I am with you in the midst of all the seemingly worthless situations of life. When you're in the dark night of the soul, when you're in the place of despair or grumbling or complaining or frustration because, man, the path you've been on, you've been on too long, it's too hard, you're too exhausted, you're finished, you're fed up, you're you're indignant. When you get to that place, that's where you find the presence of the Spirit of God. That's where He says, I'm with you in this. I didn't say this was going to be easy, but I did say, I will save you, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, I am with you. So if you're experiencing perpetual pain, as I know some are, extract this. He strengthens. If you're facing what appears to be an incurable wound... Please listen. Right now we have a number of people dealing with cancer. Three right off the top of my head. Four. Four that I'm aware of right now in our fellowship. 
And you look at it from the world's perspective and say, well, it looks like an incurable wound. <laughs> Extract this. He heals. Amen. He heals. We get so worried or freaked out by words like cancer. It's just a word. How about death? He raised people from the dead. Cancer is not a big deal to God. If you wonder if His presence is no more than a deceptive stream, you need to drink up of the Spirit who is living water. But most of all, if you've been whining or complaining or in the place of self-pity, please hear the tender voice of your Father say, Repent. Repent. Turn, return to Me. Because He wants to be with you. Listen, one last thing. I realized in all this, literally just this morning, I just jotted this down. That's what I was doing a second. I'm incapable of extracting the precious from the worthless. I realized it again just last night. We got home. It was a great weekend, but I was exhausted. Got home. It was about 8 o'clock. Got the car unloaded because we'd taken all the kids with us. And Wow, what a... What an amazing job that is. Monica, I, I have no idea. I really have no idea how you do it. We took three and it just about did me in. And we get everything unloaded and settled and, and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm waiting for Cheryl and we're going to relax for a few minutes and watch a show and she's busy doing stuff, walking around and going... And she goes, do you want something else for me? No, I would like to watch the show. That would be okay with you? Can you imagine living with me? <laughs> and so she quietly, tenderly sat down, and she's quiet. And, and I, about 15 minutes in, I realized what a jerk I was being. I just paused the show, and I went over to her. I got off the couch and went over to her, and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm just grumpy and tired, and, but you don't deserve that. And I apologized to her. And I, went, I sat back down on the couch, and, and I didn't think, what a nice thing I had just did, done. I, I thought, what an idiot I am. You know, I'm a pastor. I have been in ministry for a long time, respectively so. I, you know, I, I have walked with Jesus for 38 of my 48 years. I have walked with Jesus. And I am incapable of extracting the precious from the worthless. I am still self-defensive. I am still self-justifying. I am still self-righteous. And I am still self-pitying. So what's the point of this whole thing, Rick? Why waste our time? How do I do this? You can't. But listen, Jesus extracts the precious from the worthless. He has done that in my life. He extracts the precious out of what is worthless here. And if you are feeling worthless, you need Jesus. And if you're walking with Jesus and you start to feel worthless, you need to turn around and look at Jesus again because He extracts the precious out of what is worthless.